Okay, here we go. Off and running. I got the thumb, so I have no reason to keep meandering. July the 30th, 2017, lecture discussion number 291 on the book of Romans. And, well, we are at the ending for now of our Genesis 3 excursion. By for now, I mean for, for we're in Genesis 3 again, but we're ending it for now. And we're currently at the midpoint of the ending, if that makes sense. Uh, and the end of the ending will hopefully be next week. Though, as you have come to realize, the end can many times thrash about for quite a while. The throes can abate, only to reanimate suddenly before the end finally succumbs to its concluding. Think of a, a bad Western movie, I guess, when the, or a horror film. You can't, sometimes the, the, the villain takes a long time to die. Not that this is, that's my analogy, don't write me. What I have noticed over many, 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 many years of my so-called teaching career is that if I have succeeded in the question presentation stage of whatever series I'm in, then the class will take off running ahead of the lectures. That is what I am after. In other words, asking the correct questions leads to the discovering of the valid solutions. So if, if the placing of the material or the relevant questions in the appropriate sequence is done, and it's done as best as possible, then that's always going to result in an autonomous or sovereign exploration. What I mean by that is that the class, the, the students, the congregation, the vast internet audience will explore and unearth on their own without any assistance of me from me I, I if I'm doing it right in other words I become extrinsic non-essential I'm out of a job that's the plan it's always been the plan here uh, we've always seen that as the stated purpose it's been the stated purpose the focus of Cliffside since its infancy build up and release people who know the Christ-honoring questions. If you know the Christ-honoring questions, you will find the Christ-honoring answer. If you, for example, you hear me say this again, if you think that Christ is subordinate to the triune Godhead, if you think that he is forever in, um, in a lesser state than the Father or the Spirit of God, then you have started out with a God-dishonoring, a Christ-dishonoring position, and you will end up in a Christ-dishonoring place. It's just how it works. So our plan was to get people to know the Christ-honoring questions and then send them forth to torment the economic-based Laodicean contemporary seeker-sensitive churches as well as the monistic academic institutions. Well, that's what we wanted to do. And we've been battling it, battling away for well over 20 years. Now, actually it goes longer than that, but people will write me and say they know when we began when they don't know. We do sprinkle in a disproportionate disproportionate amount of sarcasm when we're doing this, I have to say. Nobody's perfect. Anyway, you ask me for these kinds of things every now and then, and so today I have brought two examples of what I would consider to be 
success based on what I just gave you. I have something, um, two of them, um, Mike from California and Joe from Seattle. And I'll read them here in just a minute. Last week I passed around uh, Mike from California. I have to get myself in the proper positioning here. I passed around Mike from California. Uh, and I did it because I wanted you to read it because it in fact reflected what Bill and I and a few others that aren't here anymore, Mark, who's down in Louisiana, what we did when we started, we said, okay, we want to cause this to happen. And I wanted you to read what Mike wrote because it has, it is something that we were actually intending. And it's a real letter, as you know, for one, it's non-digital, and two, it will encourage those of you who continue to take care of this mission, who continue to carry on the mission. So I also also have, I also also have, haha, <laughs> Uh, Joe from Seattle, and I'm going to kind of go back and forth between the two. It might be a bit confusing, but the comparison will be worth it if I can pull it off. So I'll start out reading Joe. This is two letters from Joe. I have to take my glasses off because I can't see. Here's the first part. I just can't keep a straight face because this is so delightful. I actually leapt out, leapt for joy when I read this. <laughs> How can I read this? I can't do it justice. I just can't, but I'll try. Pastor, you greatly annoy me. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The greatest compliment I could possibly receive. I am now stuck on this cattle thing, like a bad song or a jingle you can't stop thinking about. And I can't get it out of my head. Fantastic. Exactly. I just, like I said, I just had a big smile. I can't stop the smile. He goes on to say, not all irritants result in a pearl. (laughs) Now, I just found this. Is this anything? And he actually did fantastic on his own. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But he did fantastic. And then he said, maybe it's nothing. But if it is, have you seen this? Answers would be nice someday if you're so inclined. I feel stupid. Remember, 99% of the stupid people in this world make the rest of us look bad. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was, that was great. So I wrote him back. I wrote him back because I, I actually I, I knew that, that it would be the right thing to do, and I knew where I was going today, so I gave him a preview. It's a thousand words. I wrote him back. Easy. I didn't count them. Estimate. So that's what I wrote from there to there. And this is what he wrote back. Wow. Thank you so much for your note. I am very grateful for the additional fibers that will help me tie all of this part together. As to being excused from the next two installments, because I told him you don't have to now go to, go to the sermons because I've given you all the information in a truncated form, the Reader's Digest form, but I gave him everything that he wanted to know as much as I could without overloading the subject. But uh, he says, as to being excused from the next two installments, I consider that a threat of temporary suspension, not a vacation. (laughs) My wife, 
uh, Mary, my daughter, Lindsay, and I watch each week and have a great time doing so. You are almost as popular as America's Got Talent on Tuesdays, which, hey, that's pretty darn cool. Almost. Maybe if you could do some death-defying stunts, sing or dance good, really good, you could achieve our top Nielsen rating. Although your supper day voice throwing was impressive by all accounts, because that's one of our jokes, of course. We, not really a joke that supper day does not exist. I also should say, along with Joe, I got a, uh, there's a small group in Oregon that listens to me um, pretty regularly. Daniel uh, represents them. So Daniel from Oregon, um, Joe and you are on the exact same place. And uh, Daniel also wrote to me about the ending of the apostleship and the ending of the, the fact that the apostles were all Jewish and, and prophets were all Jewish up to a certain point. So we'll get to that some other time, but not today. But I just wanted to let you know, Daniel, that I have, I have found you and I'll take care of it. Joe and Daniel, same, same subject. Mike, a little bit different, but nonetheless very much uh, of value because of a few things here. So let me get to this. Dear Pastor Chronister, I want to thank you for all your very engaging teachings and lectures. Your questions drive me crazy. <laughs> Again, victory is mine in a good way. And keep me coming back for more. For over and above the mental exercise, the most important takeaway from listening to your lectures is how to ask the right questions when reading your Bible. I've always questioned some of the beliefs and teachings I've heard in the church because far too often they just seemed like regurgitated info handed down from previous generations who actually put in the work. Whenever I'm, I've asked certain questions about basic ideas, I've received very basic answers. This is a, how come you will, oh, this is Proverbs, why do you love the simple? He's absolutely right about this. Essentially, because the Bible says so. But the obvious question, in quotation marks, then is, how does the Bible say so? Why does the Bible say so? Upon which I've met with even shorter answers and sometimes short temper. I'm surprised it's short sometimes. Because you start asking deep questions of most pastors, you're going to get angry responses. They don't want you to know. Either they don't know, or they don't want you to know. You'll have to figure it out. It's always been that way. It's been my experience my whole life. He goes on to say, if I'm completely wrong, I want to know this too. I don't want to waste my time running down rabbit trails and never catch Peter Rabbit or Peter Cottontail. I want to be able to cultivate a love for Jesus Christ by recognizing the deep, meaningful beauty of the Bible, not the shallow, superficial nonsense. He's absolutely right. Amen is right. Especially the Old Testament. We know that the current church tends to be abhorrently dismissive of the Old Testament. And all I see is Scripture screaming about Christ and the beauty of his gospel veiled in events and prophecies and people. Absolutely fantastically said. And he goes on to ask about Samson. Samson, uh, 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 and he's found a sermon or a lecture where I say this. Samson is extraordinary probably the most extraordinary typological figure in all the Bible because he goes 
in all kinds of different directions. He is a type of antichrist. He is a type of Christ. He's the Nazaritic oath. He's the reason it's Jesus of Nazareth, if you really want to know. Not the reason, but he points to the reason. It's Jesus of Nazareth. You know he wasn't born in Nazareth, right? So why is he Jesus of Nazareth? Because of the typological aspect of the Nazaritic oath, which, of course, is uh, demonstrated in Samson. Anyway, uh, Samson also was an incredible type of Israel. And the, the small boy that leads him back into service is an incredible picture as well. So Samson, the riddles of Samson and the, uh, the lion, the dead lion and the honeybees and the honey, all of those things, absolutely extraordinary. And we will probably do it because... The fact that it plays into and is, is relatable easily, quickly, and obviously to um, Genesis 3, where we'll be next week. So I'll probably throw in a little bit of Samson next week because it belongs there. All of that to say, I'm just thrilled with those kinds of letters uh, from Joe and Mike and Daniel from Oregon. And, uh, um, I can't be more pleased, and it's very encouraging, and I know it's encouraging to you, so that's why I read it. Okay, off we go now. Machetes in hand, hacking our way through the dense forest of the past months. And the best place to begin, in my opinion, and note again that disclaimer, caveat, in my opinion, and that is to establish the creation of the lake of fire. In other words, when was the lake of fire created? How you begin to unravel all of these questions in Genesis 3, specifically Genesis 3, 14 and 15, which is directed at Satan. It is the sentencing or the verdict directed by God to Satan. The way you solve that is you establish when the lake of fire was created. And as you know, it is my view, which I submit is the only defensible position you can have another view. Please do. But you're going to run into all kinds of issues irrespective of those views or respective of those views. I submit the only defensible position is that the lake of fire, which is Matthew 25, 41, it'll tell you many things there. There's a one sentence It's created for Satan and his fallen angels. That's important to know why the lake of fire was created. It was revealed to Satan and his fallen angels, again, in my view, at the sentencing of Satan, which is Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So, in other words, you must connect these two passages to begin to understand 3, 14 and 15 of Genesis. Keep in mind, at that sentencing, it's not just revealed to Satan and his fallen angels, it's everyone else as well. Who else is there? I have the, I have the unfallen angels and I have two human beings, Adam and the woman. Most people will read Genesis 3, 14 through 20, and they will say, well, this is for Adam and Eve, or Adam and the woman. How many humans do I have? Let's count them again. Two. How many angels do I have? I have, I could have ten to the ninth. I definitely have lots of millions and millions. 
Who do you think this was for? The two humans or the millions and millions and millions of angelic beings? The, the numerical difference implies the intention. Yes, Adam and Eve are important here, but there is an, an incredible numerical difference. That means that predominantly the audience was the angelic host. So, if I am right, I know why must that be asked. It's so disrespectful. Then the enormity of the issue of the lake of fire is in front of us. The fact that it is synchronous with the trial of Satan, it cannot be overstated. So I am saying that the lake of fire, the creation of it, is timed because of the sentencing or the verdict that is given to Satan by Jesus Christ himself. That's Christ on the throne. He's the judge of all things, right? And that's a judge. It's a trial. It's a verdict. It's a courtroom. So let's, uh, let's begin by making a list. Everybody loves lists. Get rid of that because I've got a lot to put on here today. Hopefully I get through it. The lake of fire is concurrent with the sentencing. To repeat it, that's my thesis statement. The lake of fire is concurrent with the sentencing, with the verdict of Satan, and the entanglements of this are extensive. That's what I am trying to prove to you today which is uh, one of the many reasons, the fact that there's so many entanglements. When I put the lake of fire and I synchronize it with the verdict of Satan, I end up with an amazing amount of information. And that, to me, is one of the many reasons that suggests that it is true, the thesis is true, but we'll get, get to see whether or not I can defend it or not. The revealing of the destiny of Satan to the entirety of the angelic host at the trials of Satan, Adam and Eve, was a defining moment. I've said that many, many times now. This was an incredible moment. You have a timeline. Okay, on your timeline, hopefully, you have the crucifixion of Christ there. That's incredible moment, defining moment. Find the other defining moments. I'm going to say to you that the sentencing of Satan and the revealing of the lake of fire... Very important. Should be on your timeline. The, the more complex your timeline, the better. But those two better be there. A defining moment. And everyone who was there, how many angels? How many humans? There's your number. Exponential net notation, in case you wonder. They were all there. Everyone who witnessed it knew it was such, knew it was an extraordinary, definitive moment in the history of creation. Because it had, they understood its incredible impactfulness. They understood why it was made and what it was doing to what had happened prior to it. They knew the very the origin of it now was a argument, if you will. It was a counter uh, positioning from something that was already in place or something that had been occurring. The lake of fire is exposed and its meanings with respect to the origin of evil are now in place against evil. And all of these things are on the table again. Uh, not again still, but just take free will 
What is the origin of evil? Is it God or is it the creation that has legitimate, real freedom? And that, that means that the lake of fire, the creation of it on our list, has to be in the preeminent position in this discussion of Genesis 3. So the first thing we do is we put the creation of or the making of, the revealing of, to the angelic host. Do you think Adam and Eve were worried about the lake of fire? No, they had coats of blood. Who is the lake of fire for? Why did he reveal it? The creation of, the making of, the revealing of the lake of fire. That is number one on our list. Without it there, we have no hope of solving any of this in my view, as I have said already. Then we have the when, the why, and the who. When was the lake of fire created? Who was it created for? Why is it created? Obviously, it is created because God is responding. Responding is a humanistic word. Don't, don't use it unless you're a trained professional. God is, is coming with this, if you will, refutation of the lie of Satan. The very creation, the fact that the lake of fire exists, is a refutation of the premise of Satan. Does that make sense? I hope it does. The who is established in Matthew 25, 41. It is for Satan and his angels. And that is an order. It's a hierarchy. Satan goes first. It is for Satan foremost. And then it's for his angels. Which angels? What is the characteristic of the angels of Satan? Well, I'll tell you quickly. They're the ones who believed Satan. Not only did they believe Satan, but when Satan was completely disproved, they nonetheless stayed with Satan. That's who they are. As opposed to what? The ones that didn't believe Satan and didn't choose Satan are the ones who might have believed Satan, but didn't choose him. You have all kinds of levels to work yourself through. And the when, of course, I think I've answered. The lake of fire was created at, in concurrence with Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So I have the judgment and the condemnation of Satan, the cursing of Satan by the judge of all things, and that's important, the cursing of Satan. And so we'll have these, these scriptures here. We'll have John 5.22. Uh, that is where, that identifies Christ as the one on the throne doing this. We have Revelation. Uh, 4, 2 through 11, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. And Daniel 7, you know that's the, that's the Ancient of Days, 9 through 10 or so. And then Revelation 1, uh, 9 through 17. Those are our applicable scriptures that we need to deal with. Maybe today, maybe since this is just the middle, maybe we'll get it next week or the week following depending on how fast we go. Obviously, we could stop here and spend the rest of the allotted lecture time exploring the aspects of just the simultaneity of the creation of the lake of fire and Satan's ultimate, as, as Satan's ultimate destination. So in other words, just the fact that the lake of fire is simultaneous with 
the trial of Satan, we could spend the rest of the lecture figuring out what that means. But again, this is just the middle of the ending of of Genesis 3. Now next might be a bit surprising to some of you for those who endured the Ezekiel Wednesday. What comes next? What's number two? It might be a bit surprising. And it won't be for those. I say I say that I said that badly. It won't be for those who endured the Ezekiel Wednesday night lecture series. Who came to the Ezekiel Wednesday night lecture series? Never raise your hands here. Make some kind of motion that indicates. Okay, well done. Be very, very subtle. Uh, that was almost, what, 15 years ago? I think it was. So, those of you who went to that, number two is going to be, you already know what number two is, and you've talked to me about it uh, in previous weeks. Somewhere there exists this amazing technology um, cassette tapes. It's amazing. I we have them somewhere because they were all taped, and, uh, and we're holding on to them because of the possibility that they'll grow in great value, fund my retirement. Huh? I can't hear you. I'm sorry. You have a cassette player in her pickup. There's poverty on display right there. <laughs> yes, ma'am. You have one at home. Well, of course you do. So, in other words, these cassette tapes' value is indeterminable. That's, that's probably a kind way of putting it. We have VHS. What is it? VHS. That's what it is. Tapes of me in my before my girthitude. Oh which is not a word, unless I want it to be. I have control over that. If you say it enough, eventually it becomes a word. <coughs> anyway, back then we began the Ezekiel lecture at Ezekiel chapter 1. I know, what a shocking concept. The heavens in Ezekiel 1 are open to the prophet Ezekiel, who was a Jew, that's for Daniel in Oregon, and he was allowed to see the innermost of the pillar of cloud. So he got to look inside the pillar of cloud, and he saw the living creatures that are there, the four living creatures that accompany the throne of Christ, Ezekiel 1.26, and he, he, they are the guardians of the tree of life eventually, but he, Ezekiel gets to see them, and he gets to see that pillar of cloud as Christ is moving it. So Christ, the commander of the heavenly armor, that's in Joshua, he stands before Joshua as the commander, is moving, he's coming, and the pillar, a cloud, is moving around him, and inside of it, it has the four living creatures, and it is an instrument of war. Think of it as a very, very incredible, powerful, extraordinary tank, if you will. That might fit. And we should read some of it, so we will, really fast so that uh, we get through today. Ezekiel chapter 1 through 4, or 4 through 10, sorry. So here we go. 
Then I looked, and behold, so this is a behold, that means the information following, unbelievable, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. So it's a whirlwind, and it's coming out of the north, a great crowd with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and raiding out of its mist like the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. So let me put this over here. They had a likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. So you're already ahead. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. I'll put bronze over here. What do you have to do when you see bronze? Off you go, right? The hands of a man were under their wings. They had wings and hands on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. Faces and wings. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. There that is again. Each, had, uh, each of the four had the face of a lion. And the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. So there's your information about what's inside the pillar of cloud. These beings, these are the four living creatures. They're the four cherubim. Ezekiel 10.1 defines them as that. So that's who they are. Yes, sir. Ezekiel 10, verse 1. Yes. So we have amazing information here. Absolutely astonishing information at, that applies to Genesis 3, 14 and 15. This is, in my view, and this is what I told uh, Joe from Seattle, but he had already found it. And if you have been here for Ezekiel, of course, you knew this was here. Good for you. Don't tell your neighbors. So we have this astonishing information. And, and as I said, Joe from Seattle found it unassisted. I'm hoping that perhaps unconsciously, with my little subtle prompting, uh, my mind control that now goes over the Internet that has enriched this congregation. Oops. Anyway, I'm hoping that I had some, I participated in some way, but I doubt it, really. I, I'm just thrilled that he did it. Know this about the cherubim. Satan is considered, from a few weeks ago I said this, he's both the anointed cherub and he is also considered a seraphim. So I have cherubim and I have seraphim and they are, they are described very much the same, but there are subtle differences and Satan has characteristics of both. He's considered uh, a combination of cherub and seraphim. And that's another extraordinary piece of information, considering the characteristics of seraphim. I've had quite a few of you come to me now and say, wow, did you know this about the seraphim? 
And the answer is, I hope I did. But the seraphim have a fiery component. And Satan is described as having this fiery component. Seraphim, very complicated. So are the cherubim. And, but yet they are interconnected. And this, of course, is going to lead us to the typology of the brazen serpent, which is a monumental, monumental symbol of Christ. But I'm diverting from the list making. So number two on our list, put it over here, is the cherubim. So first on our list to solving 314, 315 of Genesis is when did the lake of fire get created? Is it synchronous with the sentencing of Satan? I say it is. Who is it for, created for? That, of course, is answered. Matthew 25, 41. Number two on the list, and all the implications and the entanglements of that, number two on the list is cherubim. Now, you're, now we're in the correct direction. It, it's got to be second on the list because Satan was a cherubim, is a cherubim, the anointed cherub. He's perfect in beauty. He's filled with wisdom. And he has this abundance of his traffic while he is filled with beauty and filled with wisdom or perfect in beauty, filled with wisdom. That is when he is going from angel to angel. And another thing that needs to be said really quickly, let me go ahead and put this on here for those on the Internet. You cannot separate cherubim from Job 38, 1 through 7, or Revelation 4, 7, or Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, or Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Those all come up here now. If you remember Job 38, 1 through 7, don't have time to read it today again, but if you remember Job 38, 1 through 7 places the sons of God, the angelic beings, at the laying of the foundations of the earth. The morning stars are said to have sang together and shouted for joy when they saw the laying of the foundations of the earth. When the cornerstone was laid, they broke out in song and joy. Who's the cornerstone? Now, Job is very complicated. All of the book of Job intense. It requires this unceasing cross-referencing, a constant timeline placement. This, it seems to be unending. Identification, it's... You specifically the determination of who is being discussed in Job. Who is the representative, the real people, just as Mike from California said, real people, literally real. It literally happened, but they have this representation, this symbolism, this typology. So who is being discussed? Exactly who? Who's included? Let's just take all of the sons of God who shouted for joy. Is anyone excluded from that? Well, where do you put Job 38, 1 through 7 on your timeline? And who is in the all of the sons of God? They're angels. For today, just note this. The cherubim and the seraphim, they saw the creation power. They saw creation power. That's probably the better way to put it. When do you think it happened? When did they jump? Or when did they sing for joy? When did they shout for joy? When did they see the cornerstone laid? 
When did Job 38, 1 through 7 occur on your timeline? Can we agree? Probably not. But can you say, maybe you can, that Job 38, 1 through 7 is before Genesis 1 and 2? So here's my timeline. Here's Genesis 1 and 2, or 1, 2. Where is Job 38, 1 through 7? Is it before or is it after Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? What is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? That's the primable light, right? If Job 38, 1 through 7 is before Genesis 1 through 2, then the audience for what is created in Genesis 1 through 2, 2 through, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, is the angelic realm. Did that make sense? How many human beings saw Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, verse 3? How many human beings saw that? You might make a case for Adam at the very end, but he certainly didn't see the beginning. He's on the sixth day. How many human beings saw days one, two, three, four, and five? The answer is zero. How many angels saw it? Job 38, 1 through 7. Millions. Who's the audience for creation? The angels. Who's the creation for? The angels. Why is the creation for the angels? When did this happen? Notice I said Genesis 1-2. I did not say Genesis 1-1. That's for you to determine. We have another couple of weeks of this. You'll be fine. I, I, as you know, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has had a big influence on me. I, I think he's one of the last great theological intellects of history, frankly. It'll be a... Um, but when he was here, and I'm pretty sure Mike from Eagle River, Mike tormented him. It was amazing. Just asked him question after question, and finally Dr. Fruchtenbaum told him, you know what, you're annoying me. I've got kind of the same letter. That's not really how it went, but, uh, but he, was, he was really interested in Dr. Fruchtenbaum's position on this. And in his book, Footsteps of the Messiah, he has a little tiny sentence in little tiny print at the bottom of a page where he, he demonstrates his position on Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2. You have to have a magnifying glass to find it and to know it's there. That I think is really cool, uh, because he will tell you the truth, but you have to dig it out of him. Why is that? Most pastors think I am an idiot, as you know. They think I'm an idiot because I will discuss these things in front of you from the holy, whatever this is, Lexan podium. God has blessed along with the dry erase marker. And if you believe that, you have no money. Somebody has taken it from you. And this one really does not look like it's stable. 
all of that to be said, it's I will tell you these discussions and most pastors are taught not to do it because they don't believe you have the capacity to deal with these. I think the opposite is true. And that has been a contentive point, point of contention for my entire so-called career. Okay, the audience for Genesis 1-2 through Genesis 2-3 is the angelic realm. I keep saying that. Pay attention to who the audience is because the audience dictates the aspects of what's occurring, if you will. That's not totally right in the sense that God is in authority, but you can relate the audience to the event. As you have likely deduced from my repeating of it, the audience for these decisive magisterial events is critical. You have to figure out the audience, construct the audience. The audience and the event are interconnected. Every time you find an event with an audience, the chances are that event and the other events with audiences are all interconnected. They are related. They are in an order. It's almost, I'm going to do something, let's go get the audience for it. Everybody get here, okay, now I'll do it. Go ahead and leave if you wish. Well, we're going to do another thing. Bring that same audience. What's he doing? What's God doing? He's presenting things to the angelic realm, one after another after another. Why is he doing it? What's causing it? I submit that consideration as to the audience, the witnesses, is not severable to the actual event or the act of God. In other words, the occurrence is traceable to a cause. There's a cause and effect, and the cause is reflected by who is in attendance, who is watching, and how they are affected by it. You can figure out what's going on by who's in the audience, what happened, and how it affects the audience. Now you can figure out why he's doing it. So how did the cherubim respond to the light coming to darkness? Start thinking about how they responded. They're saying, light come to darkness. Got it. Thank you. They would know who the primeval, P-R-I-M-E-V-A-L, who the primeval light is. They know that the light is a person. They know who he is. That's the cherubim. They saw the good divided from the darkness. That didn't go unnoticed. What did they think of the darkness being divided? What's the implications that darkness is being divided from light to them? What did they believe until they saw this? What did the light dividing itself from the darkness, what statement is that? Notice the specific focus on the cherubim. I could include the the seraphim here. And all the angels. But I just, I'm just saying, what did the cherubim think of this? I'm focusing on it. For now, just imagine just the cherubim as you're thinking about this. Select out just the cherubim. Figure out what they look like. Okay? Now ask this question. How many cherubim are here? How many cherubim saw the light come to darkness? Ready, set, go. Never raise your hand. How many cherubim? Let me, let me just make it even more obvious, I hope. How many angels saw the light come to darkness? Cherubim are the highest order of angel, the highest rank. So if you want to, put them in a special uniform with a gold elder tag and stripes on their coats. I actually told a pastor he had gold elder tags. And I said, you should give them 
I thought, let's see how far we could go with this. You should give them coats with little stripes for how many people they got coffee for. And then they could have ribbons and we could put little little things. What do they call those things on their shoulders like admirals? And then they'll get a tri-cornered hat for all the elders. Wouldn't that be great? I thought that was hilarious. He didn't think so. I've used that joke many times, though. I just want to see how far we're willing to go to select out a human being and elevate him. But cherubim are the highest order, the highest rank. There are millions and millions and millions of angels, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions. We don't know. We're going to find out. But there's millions of them, that I'm sure. How many cherubim are there in the angelic host? Hundreds of thousands? You decide. How many are there? You figure it out. How many cherubim? Now, the second day, just think about the cherubim. More division is happening. More separation. More dividing. What are they thinking as they're watching this? What would this dividing mean to them? Because it's for them. There's no humans watching it. Real time. They, they haven't even seen a human yet. Or have they? Tricky question there. Now look at your timeline. Where have you placed the fall of Satan and the chaos and the destruction that occurred? Where have you put it? Have you put it before Genesis 1-1? Is that where you put it? Or do you have it after? You have to decide. I love to see the shaking heads. It's fantastic. That's really good. Really, really good. I'm thrilled. I wish Joe could see you. Uh, once again, we should film the audience, but if we did so, that would activate the authorities, and we don't want to, uh, as to your locations, and so we, we have to be careful. Those of you who went through Ezekiel 115 years ago, again, try not to interfere with those who did not. I see you talking. Don't do it. Let them find their own way. Be kind to them. Let's skip ahead. The fifth day. What do I have on the fifth day? I have birds. What do birds have? They have wings. Flying winged birds. What did the cherubim think for the first time they saw flying winged birds? What's the first thing they thought? I'll give you, just lay it on the table here. What's the first thing that the cherubim thought when he saw, when they saw, I shouldn't call him he's necessarily, but I think I can legitimately doctrinally, when the cherubim said, that's an eagle. When he sees an eagle. What did the cherubim say to each other? They had time to convene a cherubim committee. Who's the chairman? Then the sixth day. What happened on the sixth day? What did they see then? They saw cattle and they saw beasts of the field. And they also saw a man. Wow, wow, wow. The cherubim, it would see, to them, it would be like looking into a mirror, wouldn't it? They would see a bird, a lion, ox, calves, man, hands, wings, faces. I have a little cherubim running all over the place. Except they're separated out. Essentially, from their perspective, See, each face is represented in the creation, isn't it? 
So they had seen each other, and now they're seeing it on earth. After darkness and water, after the light strikes. They know that light's God. They know that's Christ. God essentially had taken the seraphim and the cherubim and the angels and created physical images of them. In the case of the cherubim, he separated the physical images into four distinct uh, uh, autonomous beings. What did they think of this? They're the audience. They knew why he did it this way. Why did he do it this way? Why has God done this? This is a replication. What would be the occurrence traceable to the cause? What cause is it? What conclusion do you think the cherubim reached as they said, why did God do this as they tried to answer that question? I believe they did answer it. Now, I've got to really go fast. I've got to add in Revelation 4-7 to the process. Let me read you Revelation 4-7, except I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to do it different from you, from most of you. And this is where I think it will be interesting to you. Let me read it. Your Bible won't necessarily say it this way because of modernization. But here we go. And the first beast was like a lion. So we're reading Revelation. It's the throne room of God. Who do you think we're talking about here? And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him and sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, Thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. Sorry, I kind of mangled that up. Trying to go fast. Notice that's the old King James. The old King James calls them what? Beasts. And now that's the Greek word zoon. Not to be uh, confused. Now zoon is uh, living creature. Not to be confused with nephesh, kaya, living soul, living creature, it's sometimes called living creature as well. So we'll have to deal with zun and nephesh kaya next week. But I read the Old King James. I wanted you to see what the Old King James translators thought. I put it in front of you because they called them beasts. That's important to you. Not yet, maybe. The cherubim had been created before the the... Lion that you know, that we know as a lion, before man, before cattle, before ox, before birds. The, the cherubim were, were before all of that. They saw all of that as representative of them. Why? Why was the physical organic earth having these characteristics? Why a golden calf at Exodus 32? Why a fatted calf at Luke 15, 23? I'm just asking. Okay, where was I? Who fell second? Satan fell first. Anyone disagree? Good. We'll never know because you can't raise your hands here. But Satan fell first, so who fell second? Who was the second angel to fall? Who was he? What's his name? Immediately, we should remember the attributes of Satan. He's on parallel intelligence 
for a created being. He's unimaginable beauty, and he's foremost in rank of all the angelic host. He's the anointed cherub. These identifying qualities make the conclusion as to who fell second obvious. It's obvious who fell second. But uh, Satan, the abundance of his traffic, would have tested his premise on who? Who's the first person he goes to? The first being, if you will. He would test his premise on those of similar power and rank, those, those in proximity to him. So the cherub, the cherubim fell second. That's who went next. Had to be. So how many of them went? What percentage? How many of the closest to God what percentage of those who felt and saw the presence of their Creator more than more so than the entirety of the rest of the angels, how many of those were deceived by Satan? What percentage abandoned God for Satan? I'm proposing that Satan was extremely successful. I think he got the majority of them. I think he got more than half. Think of it this way militarily, if you will. The cherubim and the seraphim are the command staff. They're the generals. They're the field marshals. They're the rear admirals. They are the highest of the high. I hope the rear admiral's high. Clearly, Satan would start his insurgency, his rebellion with them, wouldn't he? That would just be intelligent. You would do it that way. So would he. It's the way all insurgencies begin. Co-opt the generals, right? Their credibility would be necessary. It would be crucial. They are the witnesses. They're the ones who know best the character of God. If they fall, what's the impact on the remaining angels? If the cherubim choose Satan, they leave the throne room to join Satan. They choose to reject their Creator. Where do they go? Does Satan have a throne room? He does. He's king of something. How much damage has been wrought if I can, if Satan was able to take out a large percentage of the cherubim. Keeping in mind, at the sentencing of Satan, the cursing of Satan. Let me repeat that. The cursing of Satan. Satan is cursed by God. Let me put it here. The cursing of Satan by God. And I'm even going to put it like this. By Jesus Christ. The cursing. At the cursing of Satan, Genesis 3.14, God Himself, Jesus Christ, the presiding judge, declares Satan to be cursed. That's extraordinary. The earth is cursed. Satan is cursed. More cursed, He said. More cursed. The fiery serpent is cursed more than the cattle and the beasts. If your position is, is that is physical cattle and physical beasts, let's take that on a second. Notice the order, though, first. The serpent is cursed the most. Next most cursed is who? Cattle. <laughs> and then the beasts. Cursed within the context is not severable from the lake of fire. Cursed in, in the context of the lake of fire, which I think is impossible to have any other view. Well, you can have it, but I don't think you can defend it. Lake of fire and cursed are inseparable. 
Cursed means everlasting, eternal death. Confinement in the lake of fire is eternal death to God. When God says you're cursed, he is referencing the lake of fire. The outer darkness. If there is there, it's therefore, when you think of that, when you recognize the eternity of it, the torment of it, it's illegitimate to apply eternal death to the physical cattle and the beasts of the earth. You can't defend it. They, what had the beasts of the earth the, and the cattle of the earth, what had they done at this point at Genesis 3? What had they done? I'll tell you what they had done. They had done nothing. Their time in existence was relatively short. All of the cattle, all of the beasts were in a state of innocence and goodness. By relativity, relatively, relatively, don't sit in the front row. That could be a hundred years. But they're in a state of innocence. They're in a state of goodness. They're eating the herbs. They're eating the trees. They're eating vegetation. What's the lion eating? Is he running around killing things? No. Revelation will tell you what's going on. They are not cursed. These beasts of the earth. So do I have beasts of heaven? I do, Revelation. So which do I have cattle of heaven? I do. Who's cursed? The beast of the earth, the cattle of the earth, who are absolutely at this point in time innocent as they can be. Is it your position that God says, well, I'm going to curse the cattle? If you think it's physical death, that they're cursed because they're all going to die and be eaten by human beings, that's your view. Is that a curse to them? It's physical death. They had done nothing. They are not cursed. They will not be cast into the lake of fire. They cannot be defined as cursed by God because God knows what cursed means. Because God's saying what God means, and he knows what God means because he's God. And not you are me. Curse does not connote physical death to God. Physical death is temporal to God, and he has defeated it. This is cursed. The lake of fire. Death has been defeated. Physical death has. When God proclaims somebody accursed, this is an eternal state. Animals, physical cattle and beasts are not culpable. They don't go to the lake of fire. Sorry, not really fake sorry. I'll get letters from people who have no understanding what Solomon meant in Ecclesiastes 3 telling me that I'm an idiot. We'll discuss it. Conversely, there are cattle and beasts that are not innocent in this in this context of Genesis 3, who have participated in great wickedness, who have rejected their judge as the serpent, the snake, is a symbol for Satan. Cattle and beasts are similarly symbols. We can see the poisonous snake and we can draw inferences about Satan's character and his appearance. We see the ferocity of predators now on earth. They're hunting, they're stalking, they're ripping a part of their prey, and we can likewise draw inferences of what they are symbolizing in the angelic hosts in the realm. So who is I'm sorry, who is symbolized by these beasts, who's typified by them? 
When was the hunting, stalking, attacking, devouring of prey? When did it first occur? Did it first occur on the physical earth? Say no. It occurred in heaven first. Did it occur at Genesis 3? Nope. The symbol does not materialize at Genesis 3. It doesn't materialize fundamentally until post-flood. So who are the cattle and the beasts at Genesis 3? This ultimately will lead to a discussion of attack and defense structures in animals, but not today. Okay, time to end the middle of the ending for today. Let's just do so by asking, cattle, really? Moo? Milk? Chewing cud? Run from the milk cow? Here comes the mooing cow. Run for your lives. The evil moo, moo, moo. Can't be a cow, can it? What must it be? What is the symbol? Why a golden calf and a fatted calf? Those are males. Why male calves? Did you think that it was accidental, incidental, that the Jewish people, after they left Egypt, they worshipped a golden calf? Where's the first place calf is mentioned in the Bible? It's something that is cursed. Of course it wasn't incidental. They knew exactly who the golden calf represented. Don't be a silly rabbit. Let's rise and be dismissed because here comes the brisket. Remember laughing?